0: You can open to the book of Matthew chapter 5, and the teachings of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount begin in Matthew chapter 5, and they end at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 7. And the sermon begins with a section known as the Beatitudes, and next week, Pastor Andrea is going to be... Uh, preaching on the Beatitudes, beginning the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who suffer, and on and on they go. But that's not where we're going to begin today. We're going to look at some aspects that it would be important for us to understand, some ideas that are important for us to understand as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, to help us relate to the Sermon on the Mount, and the, maybe in the context and the way that Jesus would desire us too. So we're going to begin, actually, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, to look at the very first point. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, just the verse preceding the, the launch into the Beatitudes, the Bible tells us, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This verse is important for us to, to read and to grasp, before we go on to the rest of this, a deeper study into the sermon, because it is in this verse that, that Jesus reveals, the Bible reveals, who Jesus' primary audience was. Who his primary audience was as he, as he delivered this discourse. The Bible tells us that Jesus sat down with his followers. The, the primary group that Jesus was speaking to when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount were the followers of Jesus, Thus, I would say that we can do, deduce in our, in our present age that this message is primarily for those who are Christians, who, who say we are followers of Jesus. The instruction we'll explore over the next many weeks is, is not necessarily for the converted, and we'll look at why more later, but it's not necessarily for the unconverted. It is for the converted. Why is it important for us to understand this? it is for a couple reasons. When we study this message, it could be very easy for us to begin to ask the question, why isn't my neighbor down the street not following these principles? Why why is my unconverted, unchristian neighbor not, not living by these principles? Or maybe even closer to home, we could ask the question, why is my unconverted son or unconverted daughter or unconverted spouse why are they not following the principles of the sermon on the mount and we could begin to 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 get the carby for the horse so to speak the the individuals they they we expect them to live by these principles even though they are not converted our prayer shouldn't be when we're dealing with the unconverted lord help them to learn how to love their enemies or help them to to do better with their finances. Our our prayer should be for the unconverted, Jesus save them for eternity. Because if he does that, then the Sermon on the Mount begins to have a whole lot more context for them and for their lives. The most dangerous approach to the teaching, uh, to to the approach to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter five through Matthew chapter seven, is to analyze how someone else is doing in proximity to these scriptures. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus sat down with the pagans and began to teach them. The Bible says Jesus sat down with his followers and began to teach. Sat down with his disciples and began to teach. Those that had already been converted, Jesus is saying, I have saved you, now I wanna show you how to live. And so we approach this sermon asking the question, I as a follower of Jesus Christ, how is he calling me to live in relationship to this message? How is Jesus calling me to live? And I think there's a macro text, and we read it in our scripture this morning, kind of an overall text that looks at this idea of how Jesus is calling us to live. And it's it's found there in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. And I believe it it summarizes kind of well the overall principle of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, that Pastor Gaspar Cologne read this morning. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites. And say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. God said to his followers in Israel, Where you are at, don't live like those people there. And where I'm going to take you, don't live like those people there. In other words, what, what, what God is basically saying to these people is wherever you, at, you are at, I want you to live differently. I want you to be different. There's a word that used to be used a lot in the Adventist church. It might be a word that not many of you love, but tell me if you've heard this word before, Peculiar. Do you remember hearing that? As a child, we must be peculiar. It has come to mean weird or strange, and maybe at times it's been used in the worst possible light. But to be peculiar simply means to be different. And God in Leviticus is calling his followers to live in a peculiar manner, in a different manner than from where they were or from where they are going. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is calling on his followers, us, to live differently than where we've been or where we are going, differently than the world. Peculiar living is to live recognizably different. Another interesting definition for the word uh, peculiar is it, it means, another definition for it, is belonging exclusively to. Tom Wetmore, after first service, he showed me something. He said in Great Britain, they refer to to their palaces as a peculiar palace. And and what it means is it belongs exclusively to the monarch. And so in this way, God is calling us to, to live in a peculiar way, belonging exclusively to him, demonstrating to the world, not just that we're different or we're odd, but demonstrating to the world that we belong exclusively to Jesus Christ. That's why we live different. And that is what we are doing when we are living according to Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter five, verses, or Matthew chapter five through Matthew chapter seven. I hope that as we go through this series, that, that you will ask yourself the question: Am I different than the world around me? Am I different than the world around me? Maybe, maybe if you feel safe enough, you can ask someone that you know. You can ask someone that you know and that you know will be, be honest with you in a caring manner. Do, do I seem different than the world around me or do I seem just like them? Is it evident that I am a follower of Jesus? John Stott wrote in his, in his great book on the Sermon on the Mount about the church. He said, for insofar as the church is conformed to the world, and the two communities appear to the onlookers to be merely two versions of the same thing. The church is contradicting its true identity. In other words, if if the church as an organization looks just like every other organization in the world, what John Stott is saying is the church looks just is contradicting what God called it to be. And then John Stott nails me with this statement. He says, no comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different than anybody else. No different than anybody else. And that comment pierces me because I know that at times I've, lo- I've tried to blend in, and maybe some of you have as well. You've almost appreciated that moment when someone says, oh, you're a Christian? You, you, you don't you don't seem like Christian, you just seem like one of us. And some of us at times have have kind of almost taken that as a badge of honor, as a badge of honor in our lives. But John Stott says, the worst insult we could receive, the most hurtful comment to the Christian, but you are no different than anyone else. The Sermon on the Mount paints this picture of, of the life of a follower of Jesus and the follower of Jesus looks different is recognizably different right in the heart of the sermon on the mount though it's not just the word the world that Jesus calls us to be different than in. in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8 Jesus actually uses this phrase do not be like them and in this case he's not talking solely about the world in this case he's actually talking about the religious leaders and he's saying do not be like them you see the church had had come to represent something that Jesus wasn't in in that day and that age it become a nominal church it become a a legalistic church it become a, a a a church with 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 principles but with no heart and Jesus says do not be like them either be different than the church when it is not representing me I am challenged by this idea Because I could be tempted, and maybe you could as well, I could be tempted to think that because I go to church or because I I am part of a particular denomination or maybe because I work for the organization that is the church, that I am safe. But Jesus calls us even to examine that and just as we are to examine the world and say, if the world is not like Christ, we are not to live in that way. If the church is not being like Christ, then we are not to live in that way either. And we should challenge that just as much as we challenge the world. Jesus says, do not be like them, both of the world and of the nominal Christian church. Our different is not necessarily different as the church defines it, either a denomination or a local church. Our different is based on, On Jesus and Jesus alone. Remember the instruction of Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. The Bible tells us, And to the law and the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. In everything we do as Christians, we can't just settle into the pattern of, well, I go to a church and I listen to a preacher and therefore I must be doing the right things. We need for ourselves to be examining the scriptures and and studying the scriptures and, and seeing clearly if we are following God according to his word. Another important idea that we need to understand as we move into this study on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is also related to the specific audience, peculiar living We need to remember this. Peculiar living is in response to Jesus' grace. It is not to earn Jesus' grace. The Sermon on the Mount, the passages of the Sermon on the Mount are in response to Jesus' grace and not to earn Jesus' grace. grace. As uh, As I was studying this week, something I read struck me. There, there's Muslim scholars that, that look at the Sermon on the Mount and they've, they've packaged it such that they then read the writings of Paul and they say Paul's a heretic because he teaches justification by faith. And clearly the Sermon on the Mount, they say, teaches that, that we have to work and earn our way into heaven. But it's not only the Muslim scholar that can get this wrong. It's us as well. We can struggle with this as well, to think that, that somehow by living according to the Sermon on the Mount, that we will then earn our way into heaven. That, that if we live a certain life and we have a certain lifestyle, then we will earn God's grace. You see, Satan doesn't care how he gets us into the ditch or what ditch he gets us into. If you follow the Sermon on the Mount meticulously, but it is for the purpose of earning God's love and God's grace, then Satan is happy because he has you in a ditch of thinking you can work your own salvation out. If you're over with the world and you don't follow the Sermon on the Mount at all and you're, you're like, I don't want to live by those principles and, and, and you're living this, this immoral life, Satan is happy because he has you in that ditch as well. Either way, either ditch, Satan is happy with you being in. And because we have sinful natures, I don't know about you, but I know about me, because I have a sinful nature, I often try to control things in my life. And so it'd be very easy to read the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, I need to work on this, I need to work on this, I need to do this, I need to do this, and I begin to try to control things, to work things out on my own rather than living in response to what Jesus has done for me, I look at it and say, okay, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix this so that I can receive God's graces. This is very easy to do with the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason why I know it's very easy to do with the Sermon on the Mount is because we've done it with another list that exists within the Bible. Another list that exists within the Bible. The Ten Commandments. You don't need to raise your hands, but you can open your eyes a little wider. Or you can smile. Maybe give me a little head nod. If you've experienced this in your life as well, that, that you were raised somewhat thinking that if unless you keep the Ten Commandments, you will not receive salvation. In other words, keeping the Ten Commandments preceded salvation. Some of you might have been raised where that seemed to be kind of the, the idea or the teaching. There's a few subtle head nods in the room. I feel that I was taught that in part, that, that, okay, if I want to be saved, I have to keep the Ten Commandments, not realizing that the Ten Commandments in and of themselves are also a response to the work of God. You remember Jesus said this, if you love me, then keep my commandments. The love precedes the keeping of commandments. The love precedes the keeping of the commandments. It's a response. Remember Jesus said, "I have before you loved me, I loved you. While you were yet sinners, I died for you. It's always that Jesus' work precedes our response. And it's the same thing with the Ten Commandments of God. If you look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2, I know that the commandments begin in verse 3, but but verse 2 needs to be read in order to really relate and properly understand the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 and verse two says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Some of your Bibles say out of bondage. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of bondage. In other words, what God is saying is, I have delivered you, I have set you free, I have given you new life, now here are the commandments. In other words, I have done this for you, now live in response to the work that I have done on your behalf. The commandments were to be a response to the gift, to the salvation, to the, to the grace that God has already given to his people. Never the means of salvation. So too it is with the, com- the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. We practice peculiar living in response to what Jesus does for us, what he's done on our behalf already. I'm struck by this. As I was, as I was reading through these passages, I was, something caught my eye. In chapter four, the very end of chapter four, right before the Sermon on the Mount begins, chapter four ends talking about Jesus healing people. And then I noticed that chapter eight, right after the Sermon on the Mount ends, chapter eight begins with a story of Jesus healing someone. Before the Sermon on the Mount, the last story is Jesus healing. Right after the Sermon on the Mount, the last story is Jesus healing. And packed between those two things is Jesus saying, This is how I'm calling you to live. The reminder at the beginning, Jesus makes us whole. The reminder at the end, Jesus makes us whole. And this is why we live this way in between. In between. There's a bookending, a call to live differently, Uh, bookending the call to live differently are stories of Jesus that remind us that he is the one that makes us whole. It's not a work we do for ourselves. Peculiar living is a response to Jesus' love. We must understand this. If we don't, then we can get into trouble with the last idea that I think it's important for us to understand as we approach this sermon. And it is this, that living in response to the salvation of Jesus that that Jesus has already given us, we then must also live under the power of Jesus to live in this way, to live in this way. In other words, Jesus, we respond to Jesus, but we don't respond to Jesus and say, thank you so much for your salvation. Now you wait here, I'm going to try to go and live right. No, we say, Jesus, I'm so grateful for your salvation. I need you to help me to live in this way, in this manner, connected to you, through your power, through your grace. If we don't don't understand this, it could be possible that we'll study Jesus' teaching in these chapters and become very discouraged. And let me show you what I mean by this. I look at Jesus' call to, to live differently, to live a peculiar life. And, and, and the Beatitudes are huge, and they're a challenge in and of themselves, but I, but I began to look at the list just after the Beatitudes of, of things that Jesus, how Jesus calls us to live. And I go through this list of peculiar living, and I began to think about my, my last month. And I realized I've struggled with anger that is not righteous or for the cause of God. I realize that I've struggled with with lust in my heart. I'm doing one thing right. I haven't considered divorcing my wife. Praise God. So I got that part of of the Sermon on the Mount okay. But then I go on. And Jesus talks about not making oaths letting your yes be your yes and your no be your no, and I realized that I've said at times I would do something, and then I did not follow through and do what I said I would do. Anyone else had that issue in the last month? I've not always gone the second mile for someone else when I could have. I haven't loved all my enemies in the last month, much less prayed for them. And folks, praying for them doesn't count if you're praying that a rock falls on their head. We're talking about praying for God to bless them, to love them, to support them. I realize that I've done things desiring the affirmation of humanity in the name of Jesus. And when I haven't gotten that affirmation, I've been a little bothered by it. Instead of having truly an altruistic desire to do good. I've not even fasted in the last month, so I can't even mess that one up. I've just not even done it. I mean, I look at this list, and it's, and it's challenging. I've wasted money on, on earthly treasures that, that probably could have been better used for the Lord. I put things in front of my eyes and in my ears that have not been the most beneficial for my spiritual growth. And, and folks, what about this one? Has anyone worried about anything in the last month? <laughs> have you looked at tomorrow and said, oh man. Have you looked at this week ahead and said, man, this is a tough week. I'm so worried about this week. Have you judged anyone unfairly? Y'all, this is a hard list. Is anyone with me? It's a hard list. If I tried to live this way on my own, or if I thought I had to live this way under my own power, under my own strength, under my own perseverance, I would become one of two things, or one of two things would happen. Either I would become thoroughly depressed, Because I would see myself failing day after day. Or I would rationalize the whole thing and say, well, these are more suggestions that Jesus makes. This is too idealistic. In fact, one great theologian, Martin Luther, actually talked about that this was too idealistic of a teaching. That surely Jesus didn't expect us to truly live in this way. I don't want to do either. I don't want to become depressed, nor do I want to rationalize it away and say I can never live this way. If Jesus has called me to respond to his love in this way, then I believe that he can give me the power to live in this way. What Christ asked for us in this sermon, folks, is unattainable for human beings to achieve in and of themselves. In and of themselves which brings us full circle to our first point of the sermon and who this audience is for. The only way an individual can live according to the principles fully of the Sermon on the Mount with the right heart and the right motive is by turning our lives completely over to Jesus day after day after day after day, surrendering to Jesus you remember the story where, where where Jesus is telling the disciples how it's easier for a for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to get into heaven? Amen. And Jesus, and, and and what is Peter's response to this? Peter's response to this is well, well then Lord, how is it possible for anybody to go? And what did Jesus say to him? With man, this is impossible. But with God, what? How many things? All things things are possible. Folks, as I read the Sermon on the Mount, you know what I discovered about myself? With Chad, this is impossible. But with God, by his grace, all things are possible. Folks, that's a great promise to claim. It's a great promise to claim. That's not a promise for your tests. That's not a promise for your sports team. If you've been claiming that promise for your sports team, God, all things are possible. Don't do it anymore. That's a promise to claim for your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. With him, all things are possible. All things are possible. As we move into these powerful and convicting passages of Scripture, let us remember on our own the call to peculiar living is impossible, but with Jesus Christ, as Paul writes about in the book of Galatians, Christ in us, the hope of glory, all things are possible. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you that that even this unachievable thing of living by the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, are possible through your power, through your strength being made perfect in our weakness. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us before we loved you. We thank you for living the perfect life for us on our behalf. We thank you for fulfilling the law on our behalf. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. Now let us live in response through the power of Jesus. Amen.